say his name in any bar around the world, and most bartenders will immediately whip out a well-worn copy of his eponymous Bible of Bartending. Today, we meet the legend who not only authored that classic, but so much more. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. If you didn't know it already, our guest today, Jim Meehan, is one of the most celebrated bartenders and bar operators, as well as the author of the PDT Cocktail Book and the one and only Meehan's Bartender Manual. He has worked in nearly every capacity in the hospitality business since 1995. Today, he serves as beverage director of an outdoor lifestyle brand called Snow Peak that has a restaurant in Portland, Oregon called Takibi. If that isn't enough, he is also co-founder of Banks Rum, a collection of fine rums that are unique blends from the East and West Indies, which we are here to talk about today. But since it's lush life, you know we're going to talk about a whole lot more. But before you get to meet him, I'm sure you know already that you can now watch this episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more, on YouTube. So check out the Lush Life YouTube channel. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now... Here's Jim. It is such a thrill for me to have you here. I mean, you are one of the greats of the greats. And so thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. So I know that we are going to talk all about Bankstrom, but this couldn't be a Lush Life interview without asking how you got where you did. Now, what I'm really, really interested in is the whys and the hows, mm -hmm. why you went from each place to each place and what you learned from those places. What made you make the leap to the different parts of your life and where you feel that you were in a place to create something like Banks Rom? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It reminds me of a similar question I had when I was in Chicago I was doing an interview for, it was like a Google chat and I was on stage and the sort of host, it felt very important. I was, it was chats at Google and the host asked me about like, well, what are you going to do next? Which I'm sure is the way that they speak when they're talking to like tech, tech guys who are like going to start their next platform or whatnot. The surprising answer to this question, perhaps maybe to that question, I'll sort of validate now is that it's sort of an unglamorous answer, but when you're not independently wealthy, you don't decide what your next opportunity <laughs> is. Your next opportunity is something that, in, in my case, you know, it could come from a talk at what you know at Tales, or it could come from a a serendipitous bar you know, encounter, or it could come from an email from a publicist. And, and I feel like this may sound sort of strange, but in some ways, so many of the opportunities that I've taken advantage of in my life came from someone saying, hey, I've, you know, I'm working on this and I'd love to talk to you about it. And it comes from taking the meeting. I, I mean, I guess the one bit of advice I would give to young bartenders, old bartenders, people who aren't bartenders or in another business is that, especially those of you out there who are not landed aristocrats, is that Take the meeting. You know, the worst that could happen is they're, they're going to tell you about something that you're not going to want to do or not interested in. And you can smile and nod and sort of listen to them and wish them the best. And, and, and it was maybe like a half an hour, an hour of your time. Taken a lot of meetings in my life. I've said no to 10 times as many things as I've said yes to. And I haven't said no, like you're crazy. Why would you waste my time? But I've just said, oh, you know what? That sounds great, but that's not me. You know, maybe this this is a person who would be interested in this. So the short answer, without going through my my whole life story, which is getting longer because I keep getting older, is that I took the meeting, I listened, and some of these things were very interesting to me, and and I got involved. Of course, I've I've just skipped so much ahead. Why don't you, in your own words, just say a little bit about who you are and so today uh, in 2022 i am jim Meehan. i am a, a longtime bartender 
who is now the beverage director of a restaurant and outdoor lifestyle brand called Snow Peak. Uh, it's a third generation Japanese company. I'm the beverage director of the U.S. branch of that here in Portland, Oregon. Before I was in Portland, I was a longtime resident of New York City, where I had the great fortune of uh, opening a bar called PDT after uh, opening a bar with Audrey Saunders called the Pegu Club, after working at illustrious restaurants like Gramercy Tavern. In, in addition to being in the restaurant and bar business for my whole adult life, I've written two books, the PDT cocktail book and my eponymous bartender's manual, and helped most famously launch a few different uh, entrepreneurial sort of projects that are cocktail culture centric. Apps, bar bags, roll-ups, spoons, spice blends, but most importantly, and why I'm here today, Banks Rums. A blended rum, we have two of them, a, a white from Five Origins, a gold from Seven. Uh, that was launched 10 years ago, and I still remain an ongoing sort of ambassador and advisor to the all right, we'll talk about banks, which are sitting behind me. And of course, your book, too, is sitting behind me. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, they can see those. So I guess from what I asked before to now, I guess what I was thinking is from each step, you say you've, you fell into everything from taking that call. What do you think you took from those moments and what we'll kind of break them down that took you on to the next thing and how you grew to do the next thing better? So maybe start off with the time before you came to New York. If what you took from that time when you were in Chicago and Wisconsin and made you go up the ladder. Does that make sense? I guess it's trying to look at it like each step along no, the way. I mean, I think that it, these are good. These are good questions. I, from the time I was in third grade, because I remember a book I made in third that was about my life and future, wanted to be a doctor. I went to college at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, they didn't have a pre-med program. So you took the pre-med track and then you took the MK. And I struggled. I also, growing up, had a great English teacher in seventh grade named Mr. Samuelson, who taught his seventh graders like goodwill hunting. And I fell in love with literature in seventh grade. So third grade, I knew I wanted to be a doctor for the rest of my life. Seventh grade, I knew I wanted, to, I loved literature. And so I went to college and I was taking literature classes with for half my time and then doing the pre-med track. And I was loving literature and I was getting pummeled in math and science. Come my sophomore year, I'm volunteering at the UW hospital in the ER, helping nurses, you know, in these trauma situations. And I'm working at a bar at night. And to make a long story short, it became clear to me that I was not going to get is in high MCAT score and get into medical school. And I needed to rethink this medical school thing. I knew from working in the hospital that I liked that work, but I just knew that I wasn't going. It was a, the way that the educational system is set up in America. Like you got to get very high scores to get into med school. I was struggling with maths and chemistry. I was thinking about it. You know, my mom was a school teacher, Catholic school teacher growing up. My dad worked at a racetrack. And my mom loved her job, but she paid half as much as I did as a bartender, a 20-year-old bartender in Wisconsin. And my dad hated his job and thought about how so many of the people who came to my bar, regardless of whether they were teachers or lawyers or politicians or, or whatever they did, they seemed to kind of like sulk into the bar and then I'd give them some drinks and then they'd like perk up. And I realized that that. They were happiest, not when they were at work, but they were happiest when they were with me at the bar. I really liked working at the bar a lot. And this idea hit me as a young person that instead of doing a job for the prestige or instead of doing a job for the money or instead of doing a job because it was like what I thought I was supposed to do, what if I did a job that I really liked, like the one I was doing? And so I decided as a very young person that I wanted to be, that I should continue working as a bartender, working in the and it was a very unusual decision, and this was in 1998, to go to college, graduate with good marks, and become work in the restaurant business. And that is the decision that I made. And I think it was a good decision because I've spent the last, you know, like this is the hardest two years of my restaurant life, opening this restaurant during a pandemic and reckoning in the industry in which 
systemic inequities and and abuse was always talked about in the restaurant business in the last two years. And I think that it's great that I love what I do because it's been a hard two years. And I think that I'm blessed that while work is hard right now and, and it's never been easy, I love my work. And so I think that's made as far as like what happened in Wisconsin, I, I, I decided to do something I loved for my career. And it's really great as far as in the beginning when I was doing a job that a lot of people didn't even want to be doing. And so I excelled. It It was easy in my early years to sort of move up the ladder because no one wanted to be on the ladder. And ironically, no one wants to be on the ladder right now again either. So I'm at the top of the ladder, so I can't move up really any further. But it's in we are now back to where I was back 20 plus years ago, where like people don't think the restaurant business is cool. And Fortunately, I do. So I'm not, I don't struggle with motivation to go to work. I just now have to motivate a whole new generation to think what I've always loved is cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it is tragic that so many places are open for people in the hospitality industry and they're just not coming to it right now. But so I guess the answer to that question was love. Okay. So the love was at the beginning. Yeah. You were loving what you were doing in the Midwest. Why did you feel that it was necessary to come to New York City? I was um, working in a college town, which Madison, for those of you who probably don't know it as well, is the state capital of Wisconsin. It has the university, which has 40 some thousand students. And so a lot of people think, oh, Wisconsin, that's just like a, a farm. If you live in New York, it's funny. There are a lot of Americans who think that New York, Miami and Los Angeles and all the space in between that you like fly over to get to those places. But for those of us who come from one of the places you fly over, the Midwest is not just farms and and <laughs> Wisconsin isn't either. And so it is actually a very cosmopolitan place. But, but the challenge I had is because it's a university town, there's a lot of transients. You know, people come there for school and then they they move on. And so I, I found myself seven years in, you know, at the at the very top of that food chain and realizing that I thought I was good and I wanted to go to a place to find out what the ceiling was. It's the old Matthew McConaughey, like I, I stay the same age or, you know, I keep getting older and everyone stays the same age. Like all of my friends and colleagues were continuously college aged. So oh, at a course. certain point, you age out a little bit. It's sort of like, hey, I'd like to work with people in my own age group. And I'd actually like to get mentored. I've been reading about Dale DeGroff, who had just published his uh, The Craft of the Cocktail. And I've been reading about his protege, Audrey Saunders. And I was thinking like, wow, what if I could meet someone like that and, and get under his wing? So I moved to New York for, in the hopes of A, seeing if I was any good, uh, and B, seeing if I could find someone to mentor me to make me better. Which you did. And, you know, you ended up at the Pegu Club. Yeah, I, mean, I did. <laughs> you absolutely were successful in that. I think that that was like, a, yeah, that was a lesson for New York is that one. I had a plan when I moved to New York uh -huh. and I followed the plan. You know, I think that when you go to a place that is like New York or London, they're very competitive, very, they're scarce resources, like going back to the not independently wealthy. So you got to figure out what you're going to do. You got to work hard and you've got to, ideally you have a plan because it's going to be, you got to be focused. Uh, yes. Yes, of course. And that, and that definitely you were. And also being at the kind of the right time, at, I just had moved to London a little bit before this cocktail revolution in London, there was Temple Bar, there's Angel Share and Milk and Honey, which I had been to. Yeah. But then it kind of just exploded. Fast forwarding a little again to the how and why is, you know, you're at the Pegu Club, you're you're doing your thing. When did you think it was the right time to open your own place? Well, ironically, the I ended up being the last opening bartender at the Pegu Club of the opening team. I stayed there for two and a half years, and the time that I knew it was getting right was I had. So I explained to a lot of people about the Pegu Club. As you mentioned, you know, the first three bars, Temple Bar, Angel Share, and Milk and Honey. And then from there, you have the Flatiron Lounge, and then you have Employees Only, and then Little Branch. So these are the like five cocktail bars in New York City 
of which AngelShare is mostly serving uh, Japanese clientele. Temple Bar is not quite, you know, the next. They're not the 2.0. They're still the best version of 1.0. Yeah. So there's just very few serious cocktail bars that are sort of doing what Milk and Honey was doing or what Pegu or Flatiron were doing. And so at first, a lot of my friends would come and visit me and they'd be like, what are you doing here? Like this is, it wasn't, the only people drinking there were the like daily candy, like sort of jet set of like young professional women and the New York media. That was who drank at the Pegu Club. And otherwise it was, I made no money. I made $80 a night. It took a long time for, for like, basically when we opened it, cocktails were not cool. And by the time it closed, cocktails were an institution and were the most cool thing on earth. And so yeah, absolutely. in the early days, yeah, people used to come what the, between the Daily Candy and New York media, there were, there were sort of people who were kind of thinking it was cool. And so there were consulting opportunities offered or or sort of hinted at or like cards dropped almost every week you know of like hey i'm working on a restaurant you know i'd love to hear what you think or whatever so one of those latter day consulting opportunities was my my co-worker at pegu club sinjin frizzell um who obviously has gone on and, and opened a bunch of bars and restaurants in in brooklyn since he was working at the good fork in red hook and had a guest come to his bar and ask for me. And he or he overheard them talking. And he interjected and said, hey, are you talking about Jimmy? And I work with him at the Pegu Club. And so this gentleman came to the Pegu Club when Sinjin and I were working and told me that he and his childhood friend were opening a bar in the East Village. And they wondered if I'd be interested in checking it out. And that was... Brian Shabero, who owned Criff Dogs, and Chris Antista, who helped him open it originally and then got off the project and was helping him open PDT, essentially. And they and the two of them were in the process of building out what is now PDT in a former bubble tea lounge. So I visited when it was sort of an early construction site and talked to them. And they had an idea in mind. The phone booth and the sort of hidden bar attached to the hot dog stand was in place, but they no idea how to run a bar or, or what to what to serve in it. So that was when the conversations began and, and I got along really well. Chris was an, oh, a regular of mine at Five Points, which was the first restaurant I worked at when I moved to New York City. So I knew him well and I got along really well with Brian and and then that was off to the races. And um, when you finally had your first chance to have your own menu was it overwhelming or did you already know? Is this kind of like your Oscar speech? Like, I, I know, I know what I'm going to say. I've been dreaming about this for years. I arrived in New York in 2002 and from 2002 to 2000, so like it was almost two years, I think I was at five points. We had this $5 martini dollar oyster happy hour that was huge. And then we served, basically this was like the end of the fruit martini phase. Uh-huh. So I served a lot of like, apple martinis and and regular vodka martinis and those are the drinks there and then we served a lot of new like really kind of dynamic american wines we had the robert Sheridan portfolio there the wine list was great so at five points i was that was when i sort of was almost going to go the way of wine where i went to like you said milk and honey in 2003 for the first time and i lived across the street from wd50 and met eben freeman and sort of, so I experienced Eben co- Eben's cocktails at WD-50. And then I went to, obviously, employees only. And Schiller's was around the corner yeah. from where I live, which was the um, McCallie spot. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that was the, that was before employees, right around the time employees only opened. That was the project that Dushan and did before employees only. So I was almost going to be a sommelier. And then I started trying these cocktails and Vidge's and Forgotten Cocktails came out. And at a certain point, I knew that Five Points was never going to let me write a list. So Jimmy Bradley and uh, Danny Abrams hired me to open their Italian restaurant, Pace in Tribeca. I Basically, I told them that in order to leave Five Points, I would need them to make me the bar manager and make me a sommelier. And I remember Danny looking at me. He's like, that position doesn't exist. I was like, well, you're going to need to create it. And they did. So I worked... Three nights on the floor as a sommelier in a restaurant right around the corner from the financial district selling 
150 bottle of all Italian list to bankers. And then two nights a week, I worked behind the bar and I had my own bar program. And that was uh, the first time I worked with a great PR company. I was in the New York Times that year. And I also, uh, Andrew Knowlton named my my Montenegro Manhattan, which was a Maker's Mark Manhattan with Montenegro Amaro, his cocktail of the year in Bon Appetit. And so it was like a really a watershed year for me. For all you young bartenders out there, I was putting Amaro in my Manhattan in 2003. <laughs> it was, you know, a watershed moment for me. And then from there, that was sort of how I got, I lured Audrey Saunders into my bar. And then once I met Audrey Saunders, put the full court press on her to hire me at the club. So they just, you know, I went to Bemelman's and met her and then had a meeting with her across the, the Brandy Library and just basically all but begged her to, to hire me to 10 bar. So, so you were kind of an old hat by the time you, I, not old as an old, but you, you knew your way around. It was like a new hat. It was a new hat, not an old hat. Yeah, that was a new hat, but I was being, it was going well. Okay. It was going well. So you were, I mean, you were well, well sorted for PDT. It wasn't like, you were like, I got this. I got this. I know exactly what I want. I know what I'm doing. Well, I mean, I had, the other thing that happened was Pega Club had a long delay on opening. And so Pache was sort of, even though it was this very cool restaurant, we didn't get a good New York Times review. And Jimmy Bradley and Danny Abrams were breaking up their partnership and it was kind of going down in flames. And a coworker of mine who was a premius Gramercy Tavern employee was like, hey, I, you know, my sister still works at Gramercy Tavern. I worked there for a long time. They're hiring a bartender right now, which they haven't done in years and years and years. I think he'd be per- perfect for this job. So he suggested I go interview. So I went and interviewed at Gramercy Tavern. So I went from bar manager, assistant wine director, you know, management in the magazines to like, Hey, can I be a bartender yeah. at Gramercy Tavern? So very much not a lateral move, in many ways a move down. What everyone told me was like, hey, like if you're serious and you want to work in a great place, this and you want to work in a place that is culturally wired like you, like you'll fit in here. Mm-hmm. And I went in and I interviewed and got hired. So I was the first bartender that Gramercy had hired in in many years from that wasn't from the floor. So I started there and it was right at a time when Tom Colicchio was selling to Danny Meyer and Mike Anthony was brought in as the new chef and they were going to re sort of like do Tom's very successful menu into Michael's Stone Barns. I was working with these very senior bartenders at Gramercy Tavern while I was waiting for a big club to open. And one by one, all these dinosaurs who I I know you guys are that old, but all these bartenders who've been there forever all left. And within nine months, I was writing the menu at the Gramercy Tavern. So obviously, uh-huh. there were a number of classics which came back on. I didn't create all the cocktails. But for my two years, for at least the last year and a half of my time at Gramercy, I was in charge of the cocktail menu there. So the cool thing for me about working at Pegu was I only worked there once a week. And I was working with like Toby Maloney and Brian Miller and Phil Ward and Sam Ross and, and Kent and all these guys, Alistair Burgess, been there, and they were working full time. So I only, this will surprise some people, I only, I think, two drinks on the menu at the Pegu Club in two and a half years, like only two of my drinks, maybe, yeah, two, the 21st century and the improved, I think it was called the improved Norwegian old fashioned or something. In my time there, I'd only put two drinks on the menu, but I was writing the list at Gramercy so it wasn't, I didn't feel like I, I was creatively limited. No, no, not at all. I d- actually hadn't realized that. I thought it was graduate. I didn't think that it was all, you were doing it all at once, all at once. That is like mind blowing. At For two and a half years, I was working full time at Gramercy, which was 50 hours. I was working one shift a week at Pegu, which was about a 10 or 11 hour shift. And I was editing the food and wine cocktail book with Kate Crater by myself. So that was a job some weeks was 15 or 20 hours a week and I had, I had to go to midtown to recipe test all the drinks you know in the food and wine test test kitchen <laughs> so for these two or three years i did that for six years i think 
for at least that six year period, I was working 90 hours. Well, that answers the question of what you brought to PDT because you brought like every everything, management, cocktail creation, running a place, writing, everything to now what was then your, I, I was thinking of it as your baby, PDT. You had already had many children by then. It was, I guess the best way to describe it is that working at Gramercy Tavern, Gramercy Tavern will always be associated with Danny Meyer, now with Mike Anthony, then with Tom Clickia. So I work for Danny or I work for, mm-hmm. for that Square Hospitality Group or at the Pegu Club, it, it'll always be remembered and correctly as Audrey's Bar. And so these other places I worked at were someone else's place, whereas PDT was, you know, up until I'm not involved anymore, was irrevocably, maybe even still, like people think of me when they think of PDT. And I think that was the the biggest difference is going from sort of being creative mind mm-hmm. as a part of a stable to being kind of credited as proprietor. And how did that feel? I also think that the jump to Pink's Rums, the time this is all beginning to get to Pink's, I think Pegu Club, in addition to opportunities for consulting, there were opportunities for brand work as like Charlotte Boise and Simon Ford and slowly a trickle a lot of British bartenders kind of coming over to New York and America. Simon and, and Charlotte, to me, and Jacob Breyers were really the three that were like the prototypical new people who were like arguably the marketing and sales geniuses of of their time. And I feel like they were coming over and they were around my young and, and less experienced than they are now. And then we were getting a lot of focus group work at the time where it's, okay, come in for an hour to, you know, an office in Midtown and tell us what you think. And here's like $500. And I think for me, after doing a lot of these focus groups, there was part of what happened with Pinks was the tell that it could have gone that way, where it's, hey, let's just get some of your ideas and pay them. And my instinct was like, you know what, I've been doing enough of these focus groups and and meeting with founders. This idea for banks came about where I was like, you know what, I want to actually not only give you guys advice, but I want to stick around and find out if any of it works. You know, I actually want to think so much of what people probably think about either my career or their careers. People probably think being successful is, is having success. And I would argue that, yes, obviously incorrect. I've learned the most and grown the most through my failures and or through my shortcomings or through the things that haven't worked. And I kind of intrinsically even knew back that in order to actually grow from these focus group and sort of paid opportunities, that I needed to get into a driver's seat where I could actually see we were getting it. And what, what timing-wise, when did Banks come into your life? What were you doing then? Banks' time, I was, I think it was a year into PDT's. PDT made a huge splash in New York City. And the easiest way to describe it was that Sasha Petrovsky, who was really, you know, a, you know, was highly inspired by Angel Share. Everyone kind of knew that what Sasha and Milkanani were doing was revolutionary. But Sasha refused to talk to the media. He had this very sort of artistic uh, streak. And he... He wouldn't take interviews for the most part. I mean, Robert Simonson cracked that towards the end of his short life and was able to get him on the record for his for his book uh, and for some articles. But for the most part, Sasha didn't speak for his own work. And in the absence of Sasha speaking for his own work, PDT was like the hidden speakeasy style bar in New York City that was similar enough to milk and honey where if people wanted to talk about this as a trend sasha wouldn't speak to them so i did uh-huh. and so i ended up getting just giant you know amount of press for pdt because like you said earlier you know right place right time right concept and and willing to talk about it wait let me interrupt you also you have to add to that great cocktails because PDT could have been all of those things, but if the drinks hadn't been good, 
no one would have come back. So, you know, kudos to you. Yeah, I mean, the team was executing, you know, at a very high level. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a fun story. When PDT opened, we opened five months after Death & Company opened. And when Death & Company opened, Phil Ward and Brian Miller and Jim Kearns, who were three of my, like, bartender buddies at Pegu Club, all left the Pegu Club to open Death & Co., and it left a huge hole in the in the bar schedule at Pegu Club and a huge hole in Audrey's heart, uh, which I was there to sort of console her about. And, and there was also, we were still at a period in New York where there weren't a lot of cocktail bartenders. So I opened PDT with two of my regulars from the Pegu Club, not bar, they were bar regulars, John Darragon and Don Lee. And, and then I staffed it with a bunch of folks who couldn't get enough shifts the five other cocktail bars. It was a castaway crew sort of that we opened with. John and Don recruiting former Columbia grads that they'd gone to college with or were working with. At one point, I had five Columbia grads on the staff. It was just a, it was right during the financial crash of 2000. The bar opened in 2007. The financial crash happens in 2008. And as I think about it now, as horrendous as that time was for so many Americans, it was a watershed period in hospitality where the combination of these, you know, heroic figures and and the rise of the Food Network really pushed a lot of people who were very highly educated, highly gifted Mm -hmm. and talented people into hospitality because they thought it was cool and and the desk job that they thought they were going to get wasn't going to work out and so we just, we really had a great team for good reasons and bad, and and they were doing great. So fast forward to Banks, PDT got hired to cater art gallery open opening in Tribeca by a cognac company, by a small company called Time. I went down with a couple coworkers and made drinks at this small gallery, and I liked one of the drinks. It was a variation on Sam Ross's Kentucky Made, which was a, a bourbon and I made it with cognac instead of bourbon and I made it with lime instead of lemon and I made it with cucumbers and mint because the Queen's Park Swizzle and the Pimm's Cup were very popular at the time and I added falernum because I liked the spice with the cognac and it sold well it was well received at the gallery I put it on the menu at the bar and then two a month later this guy who hired me for this gig comes into the bar his name was John Peloton he's still a good friend I just had dinner with him in New York last time I was there. He grew up in Long Island uh, from a sort of wealthy family, He'd worked in the liquor business at Moat Hennessy his whole life. He was a very sort of like blue-blooded, but very nice, intelligent, engaging man who was in his 60s at this time. He you know, came to the bar and, and, and not being arrogant, but he's like, what are you doing with my Coney? You know, like, like you guys are going through two cases a week. Uh, you're the by biggest account in the country and there's all these sales in the neighborhood. Like he's, what is your little, you know, basement dive bar in the East Village doing <laughs> with my fancy cognac brand? And I was like, well, you know, the drink that I created for your party, I liked it. I put it on my menu. All the bartenders in the neighborhood drink here and that's what happens here. And so it was a light bulb moment for him where I think he realized that like, oh, someone like me could be someone who could incubate and and accelerate brand. Yeah. And so fast forward a couple months, he told me that he was working on a rum project. You know, he'd like me to meet his partners. And I flew down to Florida with him. And then I flew to London with him. And when I was at Design Bridge in London with the whole team established, I spent two days in these like focus group type meetings. And after meeting the partners, I, I always say that it felt like Ocean's Eleven. It was like a group of like, celebrity sort of like high IQ high like it was it felt like a bunch of kind of guys getting together for one last heist they were all in their like late 60s they'd all built big brands they were all quite wealthy but they were they were all kind of pooling their resources to do it one one more time or for some of them some of them can't stop themselves I was the youngest person in the room by 25 years and, and and it was just, it was intoxicating too. But I was also running the number one bar in the world. And I, I was sort of like this young person with these 
ge- older gentlemen who were who had been doing it right. their whole career, who were like, you know, my parents. Age. And I was saying a lot of things and they were listening to me. And it was intoxicating to be around these uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurs who had done it, had succeeded, were successful, but were listening to me and I was helping to create the brand. And so after a few productive meetings, I said, hey, would you guys be interested instead of paying me for this, offering me potentially some shares and, and letting me be part of this journey? And, and they agreed. So I worked with them for a year and then we launched Banks 5 in, in 2010. Okay, a little bit about Banks' history. Where did you come in in the project? Had there what was there already liquid in a bottle? What did they want your brain for? You know, the making of it and also your relationship with Rome. Yeah, so you're you're beginning to probably pick up a pattern here 40 <laughs> minutes into our uh talk at, in the same way that I kind of fell involved with with PDT. These guys had a plan and one of the former chairman Arno de Tribute had long time work for Angostura and it found firm in Amsterdam called Sheer, which has been blending rums for 300 years, and had worked with them uh, to develop a formula for a white rum. And then John Peloton, this gentleman who I did catering gig, brought me lab samples of some final blends that they were considering. I picked my favorite one of those, which ended up being the final blend, and did what I call the Pepsi challenge with every kind of spirit. You know, if it's a white rum, I'm going to try it on its own, try it next to the other white rums I have, and then use it in cocktails. I made a daiquiri with it, with fresh lime and sugar. I made a mojito, and I made a rum and coke. And lo and behold, I found a sort of rum that was flavorful enough to shine through even Coca-Cola and was really beautiful daiquiri and, and sh- as well as mojito. And that was when I sort of knew that I wanted to be involved in this project. As far as rum, I mentioned before, I'd been doing focus group work. And for me, I'd seen vodka had been ascendant my whole career. Gin was on the on the move, thanks to these British brand ambassadors like Simon Ford and Charlotte Boise. Tequila was just getting its ascendance with Phil Ward and Maya Well and the Oaxaca Old Fashioned. Bourbon had, had, was ascendant. Rye was coming. Cognac and scotch were already huge. And I really liked rum and found that rum had the most opportunity in front of it. I found that rum was a great category, but it suffered from a few different challenges in 2010. One was that it was kind of viewed by a lot of the industry as a commodity where there was like a sort of pride in how cheap the rums you used were in your drinks. And that so price was something downward price was something that really drove popularity, not upward price. And then I also felt that, you know, having tried certain styles of rum that Jamaican rum or rum from Guyana or rums from Martinique and Guadalupe and Reunion that were dry rums, that a lot of people associated rum because it was made from sugarcane as something sweet. And so a lot of consumers especially didn't understand that like great rum was as sophisticated and complex as cognac or whiskey. And so I, as a sort of like person who made drinks, but also was a sort of spirits, you know, enthusiast and, and educator knew that this rum that I had just tasted really had legs because it was dry. There was no nothing, no sugar. It was really rich and flavorful. And it made great drinks. And I felt like the white rum dilemma, white rum has the most kind of classic cocktails to mix with of all of them. And so I I was really excited about it. And that's what got me, that's what kind of hooked me. The quality of this rum really kind of got me involved. So to answer your question directly, banks existed. The first rum was going to be a white rum. I got involved at the final end of the selection of the formula for the banks. And then I helped them in sort of all the communications and creating any visual written content in the beginning. And then I kind of gave them the idea of attaching five to banks five, because I felt that for bartenders, remembering Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, and Java or Indonesia would be a challenge so that this would be like a sort of a mnemonic device to help them remember, oh, it's a rum from five origins. Now saying that, I'm glad you brought that up. Why did they choose those places? 
So the process for selection, uh-huh. the way that cheer works, you sort of give them brief of like what you're going for and then they provide samples. And so the process of creating five and seven wasn't, you can go to them and say, hey, like I want to create my own independent label of rum and I want it to be rums from Martinique and, and they can source that way. But the, there's other ways of doing this where you can sort of go to them with other needs or wants and then they send you runs that they think would fulfill that so with banks five and bank seven the idea was to create a dry flavorful rum that was that would mix well with cocktails i always like to sort of mention that arno our chairman who worked directly with them was a big cigar smoker and he wanted something i think he could smoke cigars with as well so what our original idea was a you know something that was good on its own as well as great in cocktails. And I was there to make sure that they were great in cocktails. So to answer your question, though, it had five rums in it because, or it has 20 rums, actually. It, it has 20 rums from five origins to fulfill the brief. And I think it's a sort of strange thing in our single origin craft distilled world to imagine this. But this generation of entrepreneurs I was working with grew up in world in which champagne, which is a blend of wines, Bordeaux, which is a blend of wines from multiple origins, splendid scotch whiskey, which is a blend of, blend of whiskeys from multiple distilleries, cognac, which is a blend of brandies from multiple distilleries. All of the sort of prestigious, super premium wines and spirits of the 70s, 80s, even 90s we're not single origin, single batch, single distiller products. They were blends crafted from longtime master blenders. And so I think in their mind, quality and super premium, you know, sort of quality products were not the sort of product of terroir or not the product of a genius distiller. They were the byproduct of blend of many different things from someone who is more of a blender than a distiller. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I'm seeing some whiskeys are starting to create blends again. I think that single malt or single idea, not it's reached its pinnacle, but we all appreciate that. But now it's kind of going back to appreciating the mastery of blending, which is such an art and so um, was it was there only the the white when you were involved or were they also creating the gold? Yeah. So we launched with the white rum. We won Best New Product Details, the cocktail. I think it was in 2011 with Banks Five Island and went to, back to Shear in 2012, I believe, to work on Bank Seven. And that was when I got to be involved for the whole thing. And that did that with Arno. And, and then we also... There were a couple of super exceptional runs we tried during a couple sessions there that went into decanter bottling called Endeavor and that sold out and is gone. But Bank Seven was something I got to be involved with the entire process. And it was uh it was a lot of fun. It was essentially the same thing. We came up with like a brief of what we were looking for. You know, I wanted something that I could mix an old fashioned with or a Queen's Park Swizzle. We knew that the flavor of Banks Five was sort of that we, you know, struck a nerve in the industry. But Bank 7 is what I would call gold rum versus an aged rum. And the gold rum style, the sort of penultimate examples of it are in the West Indies. So we sort of were looking for some of that rich West Indian sort of like chocolatey richness. And what ended up happening was we, Arno and I tasted through dozens and dozens of rums and we narrowed down on five and Funny enough, our Karsten, our master blender, told us the five that we liked most all had Batavia Rack in it. And the one that we selected to be Bank 7 had runs from all five of the original origins. So Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, and, and Batavia Rack. And that Panama and Guatemala, were, there were runs from Panama and Guatemala in that the blend we liked the most in there as well. So that was when we decided if it's going to be from seven origins, we should call it Bank 7. And then we were sort of off to the races. Uh, now, for those who might not know, what is Batavia Rack? The Batavia Rack in, in five is rum. 
Batavia Arak, though, is a spirit. Arak is sort of a generic term for spirit, in, you know, in that part of the world. Batavia Arak can be made from molasses, but it can also be made from other sort of fermentable sugars. So it can be made from palm or coconut sugar as well. So part of the original challenge of both launching back then and even to this day now is the there's not a lot of sort of there's no sort of Bible of Batavia Rack that is the, the David Wondrich like sort of book that explains everything the history of Batavia Rack and, and every different distillery. You know, there's no Michael Jackson's distilleries of Indonesia book. It's a product from a place in the world that is not super open to the West. And and Shear has been sourcing Batavia Rack from for a very long time, hundreds of years from now. What makes it unique and says sort of stand apart is a lot of rums from Java use a, a, bla- a sort of koji starter. Like there's okay. a little bit of like a rice starter that catalyzes fermentation. So this, the rum that we get from there, we call it our spice. It has this sort of salt-like capacity to integrate all of the different rums that are in our blends, as well as accentuate some of their best characteristics. So it's almost like salt on a steak or Angostura bitters in a Manhattan. It spices things up. When you taste a bottle of Batavia Rack, like if you can find one and give it a taste, it doesn't taste thanks. And there's probably, you know, six or 7% of the blend is Batavia Rack. It's not a huge percentage. But in my opinion, it distinguishes Banks from all other blended rums. And, and we were the first to use it West Indian rum blend. It sounds so interesting. I can't wait to try it by itself if I can ever find Batavia Rack. Did it work in your old fashions and the drinks that you wanted it to? Were you like, okay, this, this is it? It did. Yeah, my Pepsi challenge for Banks 7 was the old fashioned. It was a drink that was really, you know, becoming popular around 2013 when we first launched it and I made a Queen's Park Swizzle with it. It was also right around this time um, I really started pushing for punch to be our drink strategy. David Wondrich had written uh, his follow-up to his book and buy punch. I really felt that the following the success of his biography of Jerry Thomas and buy this, this big, beautiful book punch he wrote was going to be widely adopted by the trade and would make sense to consumers for those of people who spent the pandemic making cocktails instead of sourdough. Um, it's great because you can spend all day making a bowl of punch and then you actually get to enjoy it with your party as opposed to being stuck in cocktails all night with a bartender. So it was around this time that I worked with Jacob Breyers on a punch set uh, that we used to launch banks that we basically used once Bacardi acquired banks a few years later. But, but this was a time where I realized that Banks 5 worked really well in a signature drink called the Green Tea Punch. Mint and sencha and lime and sugar and nutmeg. And with Banks 7, I created a drink with, I really like teas. And so I, I started working, for those of you in London, with Henrietta Lovell. I had rare tea and she and I had done a bunch of cool work. But there's a drink that she and I came up with for a series of events we details of the cocktail called the R and R, her rooibos, which she gets singlest rooibos from South Africa with some maple syrup and some lemon and banks seven and none, and it's outstanding. You know, it's funny. I was going to bring up punch because I had read that you were you had been talking about punch lately. Um, so I'm really glad you brought it up now. When, you know, the common person thinks about punch, you think about going to an event and there's a huge bowl and someone has poured, it's like the Long Island iced tea of drinks. They've just poured every single thing into it. And that is punch. When you talk punch, what do you mean by punch? So that's, that's a great introduction. So it's funny when Banks 5 launched and I went out to try to get people to understand what we were doing. I would go to bars and I would order a daiquiri and the bartender would like sheepishly frown and be like, I'm so sorry, but we don't have a blender or I'm so sorry, but we don't have any strawberries. They didn't understand that I wanted a handshake in daiquiri with just lime and sugar. And it's the same thing with punch. You assume like when you create a drink strategy or when you sort of are like, oh, I'm going to this is a perfect rum for punch. 
that this is going to work. And then, like you said, punched, you know, to me from David Wondrich's mouth is sort of this ambrosial liquid that was formulated for before cocktails. It was very much ascendant and fashionable before. And it was, it was originally created by sailors who'd run out of their, their beer and wine. It was, it was typically a blend of a strong spirit, which would have been rum on these ships, sometimes maybe cognac, that was mixed with citrus, which they would have been taking for scurvy, mm-hmm. with sugar to balance that citrus, and then lengthened with probably tea or water or wine, and then served with the spice. So it was something that was sort of perfected in, in punch clubs in, in London, and but served all over the world, and is low proof, sessionable, but interesting. And if you serve it on a big block of ice, it dilutes and sort of, so it becomes more and more like mellow and sessionable as you sit with it. The old, in the old days, someone might have sat with a bunch of friends and bottle service, I guess, in the 1800s. It's the 1800s form of bottle service. But it's interesting. I finally relented and put this on, I started serving punch by the glass like almost made like a cocktail at my last bar in Chicago Prairie School. I've done that at my current restaurant, Takibi, and it sells well. Going back to like entrepreneur making mistakes and learning, I can't seem to quite make the bowl come back, but I have found great success in making individual portions of punch. Yes, maybe COVID had something to do with not having a big bowl of something in front of you that everyone's dipping into. But definitely, definitely the exactly. the, the single ones. Now, now you have these two wonderful liquids. Are you thinking of doing something else at Banks? You know, the the interesting thing is when Banks was acquired by Bacardi nearly eight years, I think it's around eight years ago, nine years ago now, my initial instinct, we were acquired at a time when we had done a number of line extensions and my initial instinct at this time was that we would start working on some line extensions that I wanted to work on. And I have worked on a couple of, sadly, that haven't come to market. But I have to say, now that I look back all these years and I look at some of, I won't call them competitors, but I look at other friends in the business who have been able to like launch all the line extensions they wanted, that it's actually kind of nice to have Almost like if you've ever been to McSorley's in the East Village, when you go to McSorley's and you go to the bar, if you order a beer, they give you two beers uh, instead of one beer. They're like in these little awesome heavy glasses and you have two options of light or dark. And that's all you can drink. You, I don't think you can even order whiskey. You can just drink one of two beers. And it's the oldest bar in New York City. And it's amazing. And while we have a long way to go to get to McSorley's age, I'm kind of liking me and my two rums right now. Like it's it's nice to have one of two options. I can put them both in my bag. I can stock them both in my bar. They're workhorse rums that work great in all the drinks. You know, in 90% of the drinks that aren't dark rum or spiced rum or agricole rum that I that I need to mix in my bar. And so the answer is yes. Like would I like to work in other rums with Bacardi? Sure. But am I Glad that I don't have 172 rums done with a million other collaborators right now and, and that it takes me all hour just to go through each formula. Yeah, nice to just have two rums in some ways. I feel like we are, we're focused. And going back to that idea we were talking about earlier, you know, having a plan and being focused is something that is important in business and life. And I feel like the, the other thing I'll say is that having the great fortune of working on like a prototypical discovery brand like PDT, which didn't have a website or use social media during my time there, or even have a sign out. It takes people a lot longer than you think to discover what you're doing. And so sometimes if you're constantly innovating, by the time people discover you, you're like way, way, You don't even, you have no relationship to what they just discovered. So, and sometimes you've got to, in the same way that that the drink like a penicillin has stood the test of time. Why? Because Sam Ross keeps making and he's still running bars. And and I think that in the same sense, it's nice that I 
have slowed down or I haven't slowed down, but my, my Bacardi's slowed down with things. And we're really allowed to sort of just focus on these two because they're special. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that, that um, two things came to mind. Number one, I always think that every television show becomes popular in its third season. If it lasts, all of a sudden everyone discovers it from Seinfeld to Succession. Everyone somehow discovers it its third season. So it needs to baste a little. And as a bartender, you know, having only two liquids to play with is, or should I say having two liquids to play with is plenty because there are thousands, tens and tens of thousands of cocktails that you can create. And if you have 10 rums that you're dealing with, it gets probably a little too crazy. And so you have these wonderful liquids that you can just keep playing with. So, you know, you'll be having millions of cocktails with, with these two. Yeah. I think that it's, I look back on it now and I'm grateful. And I think that it's allowed people time to catch up. And and I think the in the rum category is catched up. Like in 10 years, the rum category is premiumized and we're moving towards drier rums being standard. We're moving towards sipping rums not being an oxymoron. We're moving towards we're moving in all the directions that I had hoped for 10 years ago. And while, you know, it, it, it's been a rising tide lips all the ships, a lot of different brands are have seen what we've done and some of them have used a part of our playbook. And I look back on it and I'm I'm proud of what Banks has helped, you know, to be a part of. And I still think they, they remain. I go to bars now and everyone has their own house rumbling. I sort of laugh. At them. Look, <laughs> yeah, like Banks, just, you know, yeah. like it's sort of. Uh, 2008 was early. I'm happy. 2008 was early and you guys were. I'm, early. I'm, I'm proud of what we accomplished. Will it ever become a million case brand? Looking like it right now, but, but it's, I feel like it's every sort of product needs, well, every product needs its own Ryan Reynolds, really. But, um, you know, we're right now in the midst of this kind of like celebrity spirit thing, which, which unfortunately I, I'm not the rock, even though I do have his haircut. Uh, but, <laughs> I feel like it's Banks just needs a break or two, you know, it needs a, a cameo and a Batman movie and, and, you know, something else. And who knows what will happen? Like, I think it's it's a great spirit. I continue to enjoy mixing with it year to year. And I feel like, you know, like myself in my own career, right place, right time and, and sort of like doing the right thing. And I think that we'll get there. I think that leads perfectly into the top tip for the home bartender. So if someone is discovering banks and, you know, what what would your tip be for them to do first with it? For both, the light and the golden. Going back to my Pepsi challenge when I first tasted it myself, I like to taste something on its own. Just so just try it on its own. And then if I like it, I like to taste it next to the benchmarks sort of like think of as best in in the bar and so like when i would say is like everyone you know was interested in in rums taste it at a bar and then if get a body bottle at home taste it next to the rum that you think is the best and i think that gives you a sense of calibration uh as far as like where where you think it fits the other thing i would say is that i always think of spirits as a utilitarian sense is this my sipping spirit is this my daiquiri spirit? Is this my old-fashioned spirit? So I think with white rum, the, you know, you may be a tropical tiki person or you may be a daiquiri person or you may be a cigar and rum person. Think of like the track that you're on and then think of the drinks or the application like like on the rocks or neat or in a, you know, long drink that you typically have it and give it a try because I think that there's, there's sort of two buckets. There's like on its own, which is more for educational purpose, unless you're like a neat spirit drinker. And then two, in a in an application, like a recipe. And there's obviously tons of recipes out there on the internet. We have as, as many as, as the internet does. Those would be my two recommendations. Try it on its own first and then plug it into an application that works for you and see how it does. There you go. Now... I always ask this to everyone who's on my show, but if you could be anywhere drinking anything right now, where would that be and what would you be drinking? So I've answered this question before. And 
the answer remains the same. When I was younger and more, when I was the hot new thing in the bar world and was jet setting all over to give talks and visit distilleries and do pop ups and what, I had the opportunity to have some amazing experiences that I'll never forget and never not continue to cherish. But I realized that with all this great fortune, the answer to that question could get real obnoxious very quickly. I just saw a friend who was guest at the Park Hyatt in Tokyo. And like, I spent two weeks doing the same thing there a long time ago and loved it. And I feel like instead of being that guy who's like, oh, my favorite, you know, to drink is like Toki, you know, drinking like whiskey at the Park Hyatt in Tokyo, like Bill Murray or whatever. I thought about how so much of being both the sort of person that you would want to drink with and being not obnoxious is being able to be present. And I feel like we've all been out for a drink with a person who's like on their phone all the time or who has like they're waiting. You can almost tell that they would rather be drinking somewhere else with someone else or they have something better to do. And so my answer to this question, which I hope is inspirational to some of your viewers is like to be present and whether it's like being present over a whiskey at the park high tokyo or being present over a beer at the local tavern with your you know co-worker irregardless of the setting person or people you're with or the beverage you're with to really enjoy it and be present in the place with the people with that drink because it's it's really sort of like that act of being present with people when you're in bars or when you're at home drinking with someone else really defines whether you're fun to drink with and whether you're the sort of person that other people want to be uh, out with. So I would say that like I always so tritely that my favorite drink is the one in front of me with the people I'm with. So that's my my morning Chinese herbs with you here at 10 a.m. Uh, on the show. Because um, I feel like you got to be present. You got to be here now. I love that. That's one of my favorite answers of all time. Very good. Um, which doesn't surprise me from the man who has written the book and created the rum. This has been such a joy for me. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me and uh, talking me through your life and what you know, what you've done and what you've achieved. It's it's really been a treat. Pleasure is all mine. So hopefully the next time we'll be in Portland or London, um, and we can do it in real life. I'm voting London. <laughs> and I, I'm voting Portland. All right, thanks so much. Thanks. I want to thank Jim for being on the program. It was an honor and a privilege. Also, a huge thank you to Bankstrom for sponsoring the transcription for The Hearing Impaired. For our cocktail of the week, we had to make a punch. This time, a wintry take on Planter's Punch. Our cocktail of the week is the Planter Punch. So take 60 mils or 2 ounces of Banks 7 Golden Blend Rum, 22.5 mils or 3 quarters of an ounce of pineapple juice, and 22.5 mils or 3 quarters of an ounce cranberry syrup, which is equal parts fresh cranberry juice and simple syrup, then 15 mils or half an ounce of orange juice, and 15 mils or half an ounce of lime juice, and then one dash of Angostura bitters. Add them all to a cocktail shaker, add ice, and then shake, shake, shake. Then strain into a terracotta cup filled with pebble ice and garnish with a mint sprig and three cranberries. How festive is that? You'll find this recipe, more holiday cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at a lushlifemanual.com where you'll find most of the ingredients in our shop. It's that time of year at Lush Life when we're taking a short break until after the new year. Everyone have a wonderful holiday. If you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants and show them some loving. The music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. 
And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. We'll be back after the new year with so much more. Until that time, bottoms up. Thank you.